You're listening to Vatican Radio. In this week's edition of Gospel Truth, the late Jill Bevilacqua and Sean Patrick Lovett bring us readings and reflections from the Gospel of St. John, chapter 3, verses 14 to 21, on the fourth Sunday of Lent. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who believe may have eternal life in him. Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him may not die, but may have eternal life. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him avoids condemnation. But whoever does not believe is already condemned, for not believing in the name of God's only Son. The judgment in question is this, The light came into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were wicked. Everyone who practices evil hates the light. He does not come near it, for fear his deeds will be exposed. But he who acts in truth comes into the light to make clear that his deeds are done in God. The conversation which is reported here is already half over, and indeed it's no longer a conversation, for our Lord has silenced his nighttime visitor by mysterious words about being born again, and probably put him to shame when he said, Are you a teacher in Israel and you do not know these things? The man who came to Jesus by night, Nicodemus, was one of the Pharisees, we read, and a leading Jew or ruler. He appears three times in the New Testament, but only in John's Gospel. A present-day commentator writes that he's the first of a series of emblematic figures that John shows us coming into contact with our Lord. He's followed by the Samaritan woman at the well and the Capernaum official whose son Jesus heals. We're not considering the first part of the meeting of Jesus with Nicodemus, when he speaks of the need to be born of water and the Holy Spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. Our gospel begins with a reference to Moses lifting up the serpent in the desert. It was on one of those many occasions when the people lost patience and complained against God and Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is neither bread nor water here. We are sick of this unsatisfying food. At this God sent fiery serpents among the people. Their bite brought death to many in Israel. The people came and said to Moses, We have sinned by speaking against Yahweh and against you. Intercede for us with Yahweh and save us from these serpents. Moses interceded for the people, and Yahweh answered him, Make a fiery serpent and put it on a standard. If anyone is bitten and looks at it, he shall live. So Moses fashioned a bronze serpent, which he put on a standard, and if anyone was bitten by a serpent, he looked at the bronze serpent and lived. This account comes from the Book of Numbers, but in the Book of Wisdom there's an illuminating comment on this episode. When they were perishing from the bites of writhing snakes, your wrath did not continue to the end. It was by way of reprimand lasting a short time that they were distressed, for they had a saving token to remind them of the commandment of your law. Whoever turned to it was saved, not by what he looked at, but by you, the universal Saviour. For your sons, not even the fangs of venomous serpents could bring them down. Your mercy came to their help and cured them. No herb, no poultice cured them. 
but it was your word, Lord, which heals all things. If we look for a definition of serpent in a modern dictionary, we'll find the qualifying words chiefly poetic or literary, or dialect, and then the word snake, or large snake. And in one you can find it followed by this elaboration, a dragon or other mythical snake-like reptile. Certainly, in four different versions of this gospel, the word used is always serpent and not snake. So that the general impression of the serpent Moses made is that it was large, and no doubt suitably repellent, similar to the real creatures God had sent to punish the rebellious Israelites. A comment by one Bible expert refers to poisonous snakes, but again describes what Moses made as a brazen serpent. Incidentally, one wonders rather if Moses received special artistic powers on that occasion, or did he have to call in the metal workers? And bronze in the desert? But we must not cavil. Poetic license and all that. When our Lord spoke to Nicodemus, he was referring to an incident the Pharisee would have recognised. But, writes another expert, He could not have known, nor could John, who was probably there, that Jesus was foretelling that he would be lifted to his death on a cross, in order to bring everlasting life to people wounded unto death by sin. To us, the words are a reminder that the death he must die was steadily before him. Everything he did, everything he said, was done and said in the shadow of the cross. Nicodemus had come to Jesus because he'd been impressed by the miracles he had seen wrought. He says to Jesus, in fact, no one could perform the signs that you do unless God were with him. So apart from the symbolism, the Son of Man being lifted up like the serpent in the desert, was it not also a way of telling Nicodemus that there was something more to the miracles than their visible prodigious aspect? The reference to the serpent in the desert, too, reminds us that it was not so very long ago that Jesus himself had been in the desert, and that there he had been tempted by the devil, who, both in the book of Genesis and the Apocalypse, is referred to as the serpent the great dragon, the primeval serpent, known as the devil or Satan. And in all the dictionaries we'll find the serpent, a biblical name for Satan. More surprising, perhaps, is that in Christian art, the serpent is an attribute of Saint Cecilia, Saint Euphemia, Saint Patrick and many other saints. Either we read because they trampled on Satan or because they miraculously cleared some country of snakes. Legend certainly tells this of Patrick in Ireland, and Bede, in his ecclesiastical history, writes of Ireland, No reptile is to be seen there, and no snake can live there, for although snakes have often been taken there from Britain, as the boat approaches the land they are affected by the scent of its air and perish. But before we proceed with our Gospel, let's listen to an extract from D. H. Lawrence's poem, Snake, which offers a different image of the much maligned reptile. A snake came to my water trough on a hot, hot day, and I in pyjamas for the heat to drink there. In the deep, strange-scented shade of the great, dark, carob tree, I came down the steps with my pitcher, and must wait, must stand and wait, for there he was at the trough before me. He reached down from a fissure in the earth wall in the gloom, and trailed his yellow-brown slackness soft belly down, 
over the edge of the stone trough and rested his throat upon the stone bottom. And where the water had dripped from the tap, in a small clearness, he sipped with his straight mouth, softly drank through his straight gums into his slack, long body, silently. He lifted his head from his drinking as cattle do and looked at me vaguely as drinking cattle do and flickered his two-forked tongue from his lips and mused a moment and stooped and drank a little more. Being earth-brown, earth-golden from the burning bowels of the earth on the day of Sicilian July with Etna smoking, the voice of my education said to me, he must be killed, for in Sicily the black, black snakes are innocent, the gold are venomous. And voices in me said, If you were a man, you would take a stick and break him now, and finish him off. But I must confess how I liked him, how glad I was he had come, like a guest, in quiet, to drink at my water trough. But despite the fact that the writer feels honoured, even longs to talk to his visitor, the voice of his education has the upper hand, and as the snake turns slowly and begins to climb back up the wall, the man picks up a log and throws it at the water trough, and although the snake escapes unhurt, the man immediately regrets his act. And I thought of the albatross, and I wished he would come back, my snake, and so I missed my chance with one of the lords of life, and I have something to expiate, a pettiness. One of our modern commentators on the Gospels suggests that the second part of this account of the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus is John's own meditation. For after the words, So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that all who believe may have eternal life in him, we read, Yes, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him may not die, but may have eternal life. Whether the words are John's or our Lord's, the fact is that the same concept is repeated in the space of a few lines. We cannot miss the point. Our biblical scholar writes that the dialogue with Nicodemus ends in a great revelation by Jesus. He feels himself at the centre of the Father's work of love for the world, that is, humanity, which, however, prefers the darkness of sin to the light of salvation which is offered, and so seals its destiny becoming a sign of refusal. Note the reappearance of themes already touched on in the prologue to chapter 1, the contrast between light and darkness, acceptance and refusal, truth and works, in the sense of efficacious and concrete adherence to the revelation of Jesus. The Son was not sent to condemn the world, we're told, but that through him the world might be saved. But we have to believe in the Son, as a note reads. He that believes, namely, by a faith working through charity, is not condemned. But the obstinate unbeliever is condemned already by retrenching himself from the society of Christ and his church. As for the word judgment in the phrase, the judgment in question is this, the note reads, the judgment that is the cause of his condemnation. It's not an easy gospel, and as Piero Bargellini writes, we don't know whether the faith of that just but fearful man was strengthened or not by that meeting, full of difficult, if consoling words, 
We will know later, in the sorrowful days of the young master, Nicodemus, the timid Pharisee, who came by night, almost in secret, enthusiastic for Jesus, but not a disciple, will be one of the few who will raise an authoritative voice in his defense before the Jewish Sanhedrin. And we will meet him again, courageous now, when all the others are afraid, at the foot of the cross, asking Pilate for the body of the crucified one. Matthew, Mark and Luke recount that it was Joseph of Arimathea who went to Pilate. But John adds that Nicodemus came as well, and he brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about a hundred pounds. And Bargellini tells of a tradition which says that Nicodemus received the water of that baptism of which Jesus had spoken to him on that nightly visit, and that he entered boldly into that kingdom of God which had been promised him on that occasion, dying as a martyr together with St. Stephen. Somehow I'm reminded of those men of modern times who, though believing, found, like Nicodemus, that faith did not come easy, nor, in every case, at once. For Siegfried Sassoon, it was not until he was over seventy, and in Faith Unfaithful we can sense his struggle. Mute, with signs I speak, blind by groping seek, heed, but nothing hear, feel, find no one near. Deaf, eclipsed, and dumb, through this gloom I come on the time-path trod toward ungranted God. Carnal, I can claim only his known name dying, can but be one with him in me. Another poet who came to the faith at the age of 22 and was ordained a Jesuit priest some ten years later was Gerard Manley Hopkins. His struggle was, in the view of some, akin to that dark night of the soul, which is described by mystics as an advanced phase in the progress of the soul towards the ineffable peace of union with God. In his last years, Hopkins wrote six sonnets of desolation, which he never sent to anyone and which one critic has described as, in a sense, love letters. Another writes, Such moods of desolation conform to those periods of spiritual dryness which are carefully described and prescribed for by St Ignatius in the Spiritual Exercises. Desolation is the human shuddering recoil from the strain of a rigorous discipline, a sourness, loss of hope, of joy, almost a suspension of faith itself, which makes the victim feel that he is totally separated from his God. Here now is one of those sonnets. As we listen, we may think back to what John's Gospel says of those who refuse to believe. For Hopkins we read, The lost are those in hell, whose plight was necessarily worse than his. I wake and feel the fell of dark, not day. What hours, oh, what black hours we have spent this night. What sights you, heart, saw, ways you went, and more must in yet longer lights delay. With witness I speak this, but where I say hours I mean years, mean life. And my lament is cries countless, cries like dead letters sent to dearest him that lives, alas, away. 
I am gall, I am heartburn. God's most deep decree bitter would have me taste. My taste was me. Bones built in me, flesh filled, blood brimmed the curse. Self-yeast of spirit a dull dough sours. I see the lost are like this, and they're scourged to be as I am mine, their sweating selves, but worse. When Hopkins died of typhoid in 1889, at the age of 45, he's said to have whispered three times, I am so happy. And as today is what used to be called Laetare Sunday, from the Latin to rejoice, our final thought should be a happy one. Each year you give us this joyful season, we hear in the preface, when we prepare to celebrate the Paschal mystery with mind and heart renewed. And so, as the opening prayer invites us, let us hasten towards Easter with the eagerness of faith and love.